Hello, Devils fans. Welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast, hosted here on All About the Jersey. My name is Dan Rosell, but you already knew that, and I'm joined by John Fisher, but you already knew that too. How are you, John? I'm doing well, and I'm feeling 1994 up in this. Yes, and uh, for the reason why John is feeling the year of my birth, we decided to go back and watch a another hockey game, but not an NHL game, because last week, as we covered the NWHL, was kind of inspiring to us to take a look at other forms of hockey that took place around the Garden State. And one of these forms of hockey is something that I'm sure a lot of people participated in in their youth, in their uh, streets at home, uh, when they could, obviously, John. You'll have more on that, I'm sure. But basically, this is the RHI. This is Roller Hockey International. And New Jersey had a team, which is what brings it to Garden State of Hockey. We had the New Jersey Rock and Rollers who played in the Meadowlands at the arena that we're all very familiar with. But for some more information on RHI, because, you know, I was a little bit too young to actually I was a lot of bit too young to understand what exactly the coverage looked like. What was the feeling around the sport? So, John, can you kind of give us an idea of what RHI, what your impression was of RHI when it was first announced, while it was going, and some of your experiences with it. Right. So let's take a step back. Back in the early 90s, one of the big things in terms of uh, fads, trends, things of that nature with respect to leisure and exercising and physical activity was rollerblading. And, um, if you were around in the early 90s, you know, skateboarding had a boom that was starting to go away a little bit. But roller inline skating was definitely catching fire. And one of the benefits of inline skates is that you could play hockey with it. So I myself as a young teenager, a tween, if you will, played a lot of street hockey in front of my house, in front of my neighbor's house in the neighborhood, uh, played on tennis courts, played at, you know, parking lots of companies that got mad that we were playing hockey there <laughs> when we shouldn't be. Um, but, you know, that was one of the big advantages of inline hockey for somebody like myself growing up in central New Jersey is that, you know, there wasn't always a nice rink. Ice hockey's expensive. So buy some cheap rollerblades, spend the rest of the money on a stick. Somebody buys a net there, get some friends together. And there you go. You got a hockey game. You know, you don't need to rent ice time or, uh, you know, join a league and risk massive injury. And, you know, given that hockey was also at a hot time in the area in the mid nineties of which I don't really want to fully cover cause it involves our hated rivals. Um, Street hockey was the very was very much a thing, and it was very much a thing throughout the country, and it inspired an entire professional league that started in 1992 technically, had its first season in 93, and pretty much closed its doors by the end of the decade, which pretty much ties in with how rollerblading went as a uh, trend. Um, so Dennis Murphy, if you're a big sports historian, you probably have heard the name because he was involved with the establishment of the American Basketball Association, the World Hockey Association, and World Team Tennis. He was into making leagues, Dan. And well, with two, well, I don't know how World Team Tennis did, but two of those actually had an impact on the rival leagues that they uh, were up against, the NBA and the NHL, respectively. So inline skating was big. Hockey was big enough. They decided, let's get some teams together and start it up. And in 1993, the league started with an. This is very 1990s. This is very much a product of its time, Dan, because I'm going to just read out the team names of the inaugural 12 teams. Oh, yeah. I took a look at this, and let me tell you, there's uh, some apostrophes and some Zs where there shouldn't be Zs. And and the color <laughs> schemes. Oh, these color schemes are bold. This is not the neon 1980s. This is the bold, you know, 
bold and bright and colorful early 90s. So you got the Anaheim Bullfrogs, the Calgary Rads, as in R-A-D apostrophe Z, because everybody associates the word rad with Calgary, uh, Alberta, Canada. <laughs> the Connecticut Coasters, the Florida Hammerheads, the Los Angeles Blades, the Oakland Skates, the Portland Rage, the St. Louis Vipers, the San Diego Barracudas, the Toronto Planets, <laughs> the Utah Roller Bees, and the Vancouver Voodoo. I can't get already, over the rads. <laughs> already, even though this was a national league, you know, there was definitely a California influence because, again, inline skating was absolutely big in California. So it's and Anaheim turned out to be the best and most stable and most popular franchise out of all the teams. Anyway, RHI in 1993 grew and blew up real fast in 1994, perhaps too fast, Dan. Mm-hmm. But that brings us to our Garden State of Hockey, because the league expanded by 12 other teams. They doubled their league size in a season, and they actually started getting games on ESPN. They actually had a TV deal with ESPN2. RHI was a summer league, so it was perfect programming for ESPN2, which was the fledging offshoot of ESPN, the you know, if ESPN is wearing a suit and tie, then ESPN2 is wearing wearing a super loud shirt if you're Stuart Scott, a, co- a buttoned-up collared shirt if you're Keith Olbermann, and running ads to show how edgy and cool you look, even though you're still part of ESPN. But hey, that was how things worked in 1994 for ESPN2. Anyway, they added 12 other teams. The Atlanta Fire Rats, the Buffalo Stampede, today's opponent that we're covering on this game. <laughs> The Chicago Cheetahs, the Edmonton Sled Dogs, the Minnesota Arctic Blast. Mind you, the games were not played on ice. <laughs> so, yeah. But they went with Arctic Blast for a summer league because I guess it's cold up in Minnesota. Because Minnesota, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The Montreal Roadrunners, the New England Stingers, the Philadelphia Bulldogs, the Phoenix Cobras, the Pittsburgh Phantoms, the San Jose Rhinos, and the Tampa Bay Tritons. The Toronto Planets went defunct, which was a sign of what would happen to a lot of these teams over the next three or four years. The Connecticut Coasters moved to Sacramento to become the Sacramento River Rats, and uh, the Utah Roller Bees moved to Las Vegas to become the Flash. And then that brings us to New Jersey with the Rock and Rollers. And I remember this because as a teenager, I actually voted in this. So investment banker E. Burke Ross Jr. owned – well, he owned a lot of different things, but he owned two radio stations. You might heard of one of them, WDHA, the uh, one of the hard rock stations of New Jersey. Granted, I grew up mostly with K-Rock, as did you, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, but he held a name, the team contest and the three options were the skunks, the swamp rats and the rock and rollers. I'll bet you what the rock station and the guy who owned the rock station wanted the team name to be Dan. (laughs) So they went with the rock and rollers and they came up with this amazing color scheme of, well, a rock and roll dude from the fifties with rollerblades on and a guitar on top of a record with a color scheme of black neon green and white. Well, instead of striping on the bottom, you had chords notes music it's awesome it's rock and I roll mean, dan when it's... you're the radio dj when i'm sorry owner of a radio station you want it to be the rock and rollers what better way is there to do that than disguise your actual choice as a vote between something that's way more desirable than the other two choices we got exactly. skunks and what swamp rats? swamp rats who would want either of those names compared to rock and rollers well, if it was up to the New Jersey Devils, they wouldn't want to have neither of those three names. So they actually sued um, to prevent the team from playing at the Bread and Burn Arena because mm-hmm. at the time the Devils, you know, they, they had a lease with the New Jersey Sports and Exposition, Exposition Authority who owns the, you know, the Meadowlands. And they said, well, we're, according to the lease, we're the hockey team. 
what do you mean there's a second hockey team? No way. Well, in April 1994, so a couple months before they actually dropped the first orange puck at the uh, Brendan Byrne Arena, <laughs> uh, Superior Court Judge Reginald Stanton ruled that, well, there's there are enough differences between ice and roller hockey such that, yeah, the rock and rollers can play there. So they did. Um, and that the RHI uh, player draft, they uh, announced that Nick Fatu, Rangers legend, and I guess Staten Island legend, mm-hmm. and previous coach of the Nashville Knights of the East Coast Hockey League, was named as the coach, general manager, and in this particular game, player. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they made a big splash also at the draft that year, also by uh, selecting the Twins, Chris and Peter Ferraro, neither of whom never played for the Rock and Rollers because they wanted to play NHL hockey. They signed, uh, they brought in uh, Daniel Bertome, who played for the Ottawa Senators when they were an expansion team, which tells you exactly how good he was. And left NHLer, ex-NHLer Ian Duncan, along with uh, Trevor Jobe, who was an AHL um, slash ECHL top scorer. And they signed Manon Rayom, who who had a bit of a you know bit of a buzz at that time, since a couple years prior she did appear in an exhibition game for the Tampa Bay Lightning. She's played men's professional ice hockey as a as a backup goaltender. She played in the QMJHL. Um, she was the first female in all three of those leagues to put on the pads, and now. She could be the first female to put on the pads in the RHI. So the team dropped the puck in 1994, and this is their, I believe, their third game of the season at uh, at the Brendan Byrne Arena in front of a crowd of supposedly over 10,000 people, give or take a couple thousand, I would say, to play the Buffalo Stampede clad in all black with navy blue lettering. Poor choice, guys. Poor choice for <laughs> poor, poor color scheme. For <laughs> yeah, nothing Very is hard to read. nothing is visible on those jerseys. Um, and in terms of it being, you know, maybe vaguely important that Rayom, if she got into a game and it was televised, as we learned later on in this game, it was the first time a uh, woman was televised playing professional hockey specifically. So that was pretty cool um, to know later on in this game. But why did she have to come into the game? That's a question that we're going to answer for you as we go through the details of this. And the clip I linked under the post only had the second half of the game. So we picked things up between the eventual champion, by the way, Buffalo Stampede and the New Jersey Rock and Rollers at halftime. Yeah, so just as a quick aside here, RHI games were played differently than the NHL. For starters, there was there was no neutral zone or blue lines. There was no offside in a traditional sense. You still had icings or what they called illegal clearings. Games were played in 12-minute quarters. And um, the only offside rule is that uh, you can't pass the puck over the center line. You could carry it over and make a pass. You can make a pass before them, but you can't go from one half to the other directly. Mm-hmm. That's it. So lots of cherry picking, lots of counterattack rushes, and it's all four on four hockey too. So lots of space. And even though it was a fairly, I would say, quiet game for RHI since it was only 4-2 at the half, <laughs> Buffalo kicked it up a notch fairly early by making uh, Daniel Berteon, a.k.a. the Bandit, well, look terrible because he played very bad in this game, and <laughs> as did the Rock and Rollers. Their, their concept of defense compared to, say, I don't know, the New Jersey Devils of that time period is pretty much night and day. Well, there so was I, no defense. There was none. And Buffalo was like, oh, hey, look, space, goals. Like, watching through this, right, it seems like, you know, the typical lead in ice hockey is not as secure as it is in roller hockey. 
if you, you know, given three goal lead, four goal lead, whatever, the announcers are still very much talking about how, you know, it's only four goals, now three goals. It seems like goals are coming early and often, but that doesn't yeah. excuse the way the rock and rollers play defense for the, almost the entirety of that third quarter until Rayom steps in. Exactly. I mean, we get, st- well, first and foremost, my first impression is, wow, this is ugly. Um, <laughs> Eventually, RHI would mandate that rinks would have to have sport court, which made for like a blue surface that's tiles. And Mm. it made, you know, it was good for the skates. It was good for the puck. And it was also good for visibility. This did not happen. The game was literally played on the concrete floor of the Brendan Byrne Arena with a with what appeared to be stickered logos and a white. Not the crease was colored. The inside of the net was colored to help make it clear for the referees to understand whether or not the puck went in the net or not. Mm -hmm. It was that ugly on the floor because, as you know, the Brendan Byrne Arena has been around for a while at this point. So, I mean, this is not a fresh sheet of concrete here. This is a well-used slab. And good luck trying to figure, you know, trying to find the dots on the ice is difficult. Trying to find the puck in traffic is difficult. And if the puck went into the towel that was stored by the goaltenders in their nets, you know, which were a helpful blue and purple, uh, good luck. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was, was just ugly to watch. It looks very it, it looked like they were just playing outside. Almost. If it wasn't for the fact that there was, you know, well, advertisements and such and crowd and yeah, whatever. And yeah, but like the crowd. if you if you just take that rink and transplant it outdoors, I think it would still make it just as much sense. It, exactly. And I will say this, though, the initial debut season for the Rock and Rollers actually drew very well compared to the other RHI teams. They average that season just under 7,000 per game, which was actually the third best out of the 24 teams, which helped explain why the Rock and Rollers were one of the more stable franchises of the league. Because, spoiler alert, RHA fell hard very fast after 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, and tickets were fairly cheap. Uh, again, it was a summer league. But again, if you were a sporting fan, you were co- technically competing with the World Cup, which was advertised during this game. Yep. And literally just had a game at you know across the way at uh, Giant Stadium couple days ago and you know needless to say if you were a sporting fan your options if your options were world cup soccer or roller hockey (laughs) the people went with the soccer (laughs) another confusing thing about the game as we pick up right into halftime uh is the fact that there's a bergeron that has scored for new jersey up until this up to this point and eventually a bergeron for buffalo also will get a hat trick so you're tracking bergerons Uh, That's Martin Bergeron in New Jersey and Chris Bergeron on Buffalo. Correct. But there's a lot of, you know, we we pick up at 4-2 and they're not playing defense, as we said. And so far, you know, we we know that goals can come early and often in roller hockey because we learned that the first two goals this game were scored 39 seconds apart. Right away, a Corvo shot from the slot goes in and it's 5-2 Buffalo and there's little resistance from New Jersey's end. Hey, Corbo fought through a really, you know, really obvious hook that the refs decided not to call right. to make that shot happen. But yeah, the, the the defense of this game was very much like a matador. Oh, the guy's coming at me. Ole! Oh, hey, he has all this net and uh, he, he scores. Wow, what a shock. Um, shortly after the goal by Corbo, we get our first, except maybe not, because the ESPN2 broadcast isn't sure what is or isn't a power play goal. <laughs> So, you know how I mentioned Nick Fatou is the GM and the coach and played in this game? Former Ranger. Yeah, former Ranger. He was 42 years old, or 41, I should say. He was in his 40s for this game. He mm. came out of retirement, effectively, to, to play in this game because I guess the team needed a roster yeah. uh, spot. And uh, Corvo hauled him down, 
He didn't like that, so he basically whacked him not so subtly in the face. Corvo wants to fight him, and then the the, uh, the uh, broadcasters, Craig Minaveri and Jim Fox, point out that, you know, hey, if you start a fight, you're automatically suspended. So, you know, no fight. Mm-hmm. But they did catch the high stick on Fatu, and then we get more terrible defense, and then Bertheum is just beaten straight up clean by Chris Bergeron for what would be the second step for his eventual hat trick. The announcers don't call this power play goal. There's no scoreboard indicating or no clock that's consistently on screen to let you know if it was a power play goal or not. I thought it was a power play goal, but later in the broadcast it indicated it wasn't. So whatever. Well, because power but plays it, are shorter in the RHI, we should mention. Yes, that's right. They're 90 seconds for minors and four minutes for majors. There were no majors in this game, but they were 90 seconds long. But as you said, it was 39 seconds apart and we had the penalty in between. So by logic, it should have been a power play goal. Oh, no, so the first two goals of the game as a whole, I meant, because they showed that graphic. And it turns out the first two goals of the game that Buffalo scored were 39 seconds apart. So we know they're early and often based on that and what we see later. But, yeah, I I think this one might have been outside of it. Okay, then I stand correct. But the game – this game moves fast. It wasn't – like, even though the runtime on the video is just over an hour, that's with commercials. This – you pretty much – there were very few stoppages in this game, and whatever stoppages there were, they didn't last very long. Like, this is a very fast-moving game. Um, and it's also helped by the fact that, again, the Rock and Rollers don't believe in the concept of defense. And since Fatou's in the box, I can't imagine he's coaching them up while serving the minor or just after serving the minor. Uh, anyway, it was a bad goal by Bertamon, and he leaves the bench, and then we make some history as Men on Rayom comes in and the crowd gets, well, I don't want to say hot, they warm up. They get louder. The crowd loves it already because after that goal goes in that you just mentioned, they start chanting for her. That's true, yeah, (laughs) because it was a bad goal by Berteo. Yeah. It's it's pretty much bringing the backup. It doesn't matter if the backup is Manon Rayom, a 42-year-old Zamboni driver that works for the team. You know, you'll take anybody at that point. But Rayom came in, and then we get some disturbing news. I, I don't know if you picked up on this, Dan. But they, Minaveri and Fox are going on about, you know, this is a big moment for her. This is a big moment for, you know, women in professional sports. And then they note, it's amazing that she's in this game because she suffered a hamstring five days ago and hasn't played, you know, hasn't taken to the, uh, taken to putting on the pad since then. Yeah. And I immediately write, uh oh. <laughs> I don't think, because mind you, Manon Rayom's a, well, okay. Among women, I imagine she's of average size, yeah. you know, five, six, 120 pounds. But among male players, that is tiny. Like we yeah. saw what a five foot six goaltender would do in the NHL and Roberto, I'm sorry, Romero got lit up. Uh, Rayom, well, good luck. Also with the bad hamstring, extra good luck. <laughs> but hey, you're down four goals. What do you got to lose? I, I think at that point, that's more that's more the spirit of it. What have you got to lose? And also, it's cool that we have the professional uh, TV debut of a woman playing professional hockey. We have something that we haven't seen before, something that the uh, announcers are very excited about because they continuously talk about it throughout the game. The fans are super hyped about it. So the result may not be as important, but yeah, that injury concern, it was basically said right after she came in there. And, you know, it's, it's a bold move in general for a woman to play professional hockey against men, but it's an even bolder move to play injured. So she comes in at a score of six to two and all of a sudden New Jersey is whipped back to life. Almost, they almost a really bad. Life. They give up a really bad two on one mm-hmm. where, again, the defense might as well have just made it a two on. Oh, 
Rayom came up big with the save. So, of course, the fans love it because, one, a goaltender has made a save for New Jersey in this game. <laughs> and, two, she gets lucky because the rebound was pretty much wide open for the for the, for the uh, open man. He puts it way wide. I want to point out at this point, the announcers did point out that a number of these players were ECHL players, like playing, you know, in the summer. Because mm-hmm. if you were playing below the AHL, you weren't making a lot of money playing hockey. So making a couple extra bucks playing in the summer keeps you in shape. You know, a lot of ECHLers and I guess hopeful ECHLers were in this game. But you could also see there's a reason why they were not in the AHL and definitely not looking to be NHL players anytime soon Mm -hmm. because that was a big miss. But hey, Rayo made a save. It was in a tough situation. And then, and then... The Rock and Rollers take another penalty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they uh, uh, they took, took so penalty. many penalties in just the time we were watching. Because when we tuned in, they showed the power play statistics, and at that point, New Jersey was one for five, and Buffalo was only zero for two. Right. That's that's at the start of this whole thing. And so far, how many New Jersey penalties do we have? Oh my goodness. Two or I, three I, at least that we've talked about, and with yep. more to go in that fourth quarter. Oh yeah, it, it's. <laughs> Discipline was also a bad thing. I guess the Rock and Rollers just didn't like the le- anything with the letter D in it. Yes. In this game. Whether it was defense, discipline. Devils. Uh, a dogged attitude to try to salvage, you know, help your goalie out. Because, okay, so here's what, so first and foremost, during this penalty kill, Rayom shows up well again. She, she has this guy named Major in front of him who's a legit six foot four, two 220 pounds. And, you know, she's hacking at it at the back of his legs like, you know, she's a goalie from the 70s. So, you know, well done. And then the Rock and Rollers, one of the one of their defending players, while tracking one of the Stampede players cutting in front of the net, bumps down Rayom. Yeah. And, and Bergeron's like, "Oh, cool! I have the whole upper half of the net wide open. <laughs> yep. Here's a hat trick. <laughs> Easy two enough. To seven. Yeah. And there's so- nothing she could do about that. She was already, you know, it was going to be a tough shot for her either way because of the size and the proximity of where uh, Bergeron yeah. was shooting from. But especially when she got knocked down, it was it was pretty hopeless and not only that it you know i didn't realize that until we're talking about it just now is that you know now that we know she had an injured hamstring what if she got worse from that yep uh she she played through the game she was a real trooper in this one um anyways so now the comeback starts yeah sorry it's 7-2 before new jersey decides to uh announce their presence in this game but let's take a break here right before the comeback starts and finish up the game at the other end of these um these words from our sponsors be right back hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so we left off with New Jersey beginning a comeback. They're down 7-2 to in the third quarter of this game. And if you're just tuning in for some weird reason in the middle of an episode, yes, we're talking about the Roller Hockey International League. And we have the New Jersey Rock and Rollers versus the Buffalo Stampede. Manon Rayom is in goal. She is a woman, and that is significant for 
uh, telecast reasons, for professional hockey, for glass ceiling breaking reasons. That being and said, for and for Rayom, she gets to play professional hockey with the boys. She is just one of the boys, as she said in every interview, uh, following her debut in Tampa Bay Lightning training camp. That all being said, she you know, has an unfortunate scenario where she gets bumped into, goal goes top corner, New Jersey starts to come back after they realize, okay, we're down five, we can start generating some offense now, and they do, because Hero, New Jersey's leading scorer at the time, scores on Vitucci, or Vitucci. Uh, he had played with the Quebec Nordiques, and it's 7-2-3. He played one game with the Quebec Nordiques. Yep. That's the level <laughs> of talent that we're dealing with. But it was a big breakaway goal. And mind you, this was shortly after... Uh, Buffalo had an odd odd man rush alone, and Socho was all alone as a trailer, and Rayom denied him with an Artus Urbe-like split move. And then, you know, just right away, the Rock and Rollers get, you know, they basically spring Juves Hero three free, and, you know, it's now a four-goal game. And um, the Rock and Rollers nearly score shortly thereafter, and it really highlights how quick things move in this game from yep. a goaltending and a scoring perspective because the rock and rollers should have made it four seven on the very next shift Two got, you know, somehow whiffed on a big open chance. And then it gets, goes back and forth. Bergeron gets, uh, I'm sorry, New Jersey's Bergeron <laughs> gets robbed by Buffalo. Um, and then later there's, you know, a two on, you know, shortly thereafter, there's another two on one and Chris Bergeron this time finally finishes uh, it. Martin so, Bergeron. Martin Bergeron, wrong Bergeron. <laughs> I am mixing up my Bergerons, and I took notes here. <laughs> Martin's Bergeron finishes this two-on-one. It's four-seven, and that's really how how this game, you know, and I guess how RHI in general was like. Like, okay, you didn't score on this three-on-one or three-on-two. Don't worry. In thirty seconds, you'll get another opportunity if you can make one decent pass. Well, that's su- super appropriate because uh, what happens thirty-seven seconds later? We get a goal, and I swear <laughs> this is not a made-up name. <laughs> Yves Hero springs Lyle Wild Goose for a one on one with Vertusi. And, and, and he, he not only scores, Dan, to make it 5 7, they, they cut to the crowd, and there's a bunch of kids holding up a sign for this guy. And it's not like a team made sign, like, oh, we want you know signs in the crowd to show off support for our players. It's like, no, these kids tape papers together mm. to spell out how much they love the goose. And at this point, Dan, I want to you know segue and briefly talk about Lyle Wild Goose because I, I really need to emphasize this is a real man with his with this is a real name, and I want to briefly go over his career in hockey. <laughs> well, so, so it's nice of ESPN to find his kids in the crowd there. Well, he had, he must have had five of them. And they were all teenagers. And mind you, Lyle was like you know he was born in 1968, so in 1994. Man, he was a very busy young man. No, he well, was not. <laughs> no, it wasn't them. But the fact that they no. had a sign, good for them, good for him. And let, let's hear a little bit more about Mr. Goose. Yeah, and this is another, again, another, give you all a taste of like what was the talent level of RHI. So Lyle Wild Goose was drafted by Calgary in the 1990 supplemental draft. We don't have the supplemental draft anymore, Dan. Mm-hmm. We just have the entry draft. Back, back in the 90s, you had a second draft for whether it's European professionals or other overage players just to pick them so they don't become wild free agents. Um, he was drafted after his junior year with Providence College. He went back to Providence. He never played for Calgary, never came close. Did he play he did... for Lou? No, he did not play for Lou. His okay. first, his freshman year was in 1987-88, okay, so gotcha. he just out on Lou. Yep. Uh, but the influence, I'm sure, was there. He technically actually has a slight, not a slight, well, okay, a slight connection to the New Jersey Devils organization. After his senior year in Providence, he 
went to the ECHL. He played 13 games with Richmond. Then he moved to Rally with the Ice Caps and became one of their top scorers for the next two seasons. And in 1993-94, um, obviously maybe the highlight of his uh, professional career, in addition to playing for the Rock and Rollers, <laughs> uh, scoring one of his nine goals that season um, that we just talked about. Uh, he, he put up 40 goals and 46 assists in 68 games with the Rally Ice Caps. And he actually got two games with the Albany River Rats and scored a goal. Oh, there you go. Now, he never played in the AHL ever again. In fact, he ended his career after 1996, um, at, at, at which he scored a lot of points with the Raleigh Ice Caps, 72 and 70 games, and actually returned to the Rock and Rollers in 96 for 44 points in 24 games. So I don't know if it was an injury case, but uh, Lyle Wildgoose, he is now well-retired, and his name is really Lyle Wild Goose. <laughs> And he has a posse. <laughs> well, so we know the goose. That's uh, Nikita Gusa. But the wild goose scores to make it 7-5. And that happened 37 seconds after it was 7-4. So all of a sudden, Manon Rayom coming on has admittedly, and based on interviews that, um, what was his name, Jim Fox had with players on the New Jersey bench, it seemed like she was the boost. And, you know, they knew yep. that they had to make a better effort in front of Berthoon. But then... Manon comes in and there's just a little bit of energy that they needed to get it within two goals. Unfortunately, yeah. this is the closest it would ever be. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my brief notes on the third quarter, Rayom really did give him a lift, if only because she made some saves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bertiome really did it. Um, we went into the into this third quarter with Buffalo out shooting New Jersey 27 to 18. And I think the shot count was something like 33 to 24 or something like that. Mm. So, I mean, Buffalo was still tilting the court. Not the rink, but the court to their in the their, surface. In their <laughs> the surface, yeah. Uh, and my general con, my my last general note for the third quarter: defense in this league, in this economy. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, and the fourth quarter starts, and my first note is that Nick Fatou is playing like a forty-one-year-old ex-goon. Yeah, and and, uh, and, he... and he 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 does not help out Manny. As they called Man on Rayom on the bench. <laughs> no, no. Nick Fatio forgets that he actually has someone blocking the goal who's in full equipment, but it's paramount for them to see the puck when they play. And because yep. he's gigantic and Manon Rayom is not gigantic, he stands right in front of her and puts his feet together and has his arm out as if trying to play goalie when blocking a shot. But it probably would have been easier for all involved if he just stepped out of the way or give her some sort of sight line because Buffalo ends up scoring to make it eight to five and very quickly it takes away most of if not all of the momentum that new jersey had generated in the third i want to highlight again that fatu is the general manager and the coach of this team now he he did not last as coach of the rock and rollers he went back to the echl as a head coach after this season <laughs> and i think this is telling because why would you're the coach at what at what and what how would you ever think i'm gonna screen my goaltender and try to make a save despite the fact i'm not wearing pads what in the world were you thinking this, if they had Kaman Sun as a segment for Roller Hockey International on ESPN2, which, you know, maybe they would have because, you know, they were trying to be edgy and hip back then on ESPN2, this would have been a total Kaman Sun moment. <laughs> I, I want to hold up a piece of cardboard right now and just say, come on, son, blocking a shot like that. Of course, Fatou's older than I am, so I can't really call him Kaman Sun, but this, you get my point. This, this is, is a man who played for the Rangers and Flyers. You know, we can't expect too much. He played. He played hundreds of games in the NHL, and he was a head coach before he, you know, you know, he was a head coach in the ECHL for five. You know, I'm sorry, two seasons mm -hmm. before going on this RHI expert, you know, experience here. Like this is a guy who, you know, he's he's been on the bench a lot. He knows 
what to look for. And he he did the stupidest thing possible. And 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 you know what you know what's bad after giving up a goal like that, Dan? Is it another goal? Or taking well, a penalty? Because that you. happened too. <laughs> yeah, Bob Cowan takes a really lazy high sticking penalty. Vecarelli wants the guy who gets high sticked in the face, and it was stupidly obvious. He's mad, but you know, he decides that the best best revenge is a punishment for this goal, which may or may not have counted as a power play goal, according to ESPN2's you know stat count for the uh, power play advantages. But <laughs> Len Shosho rounded the D, rounded back to the slot. <laughs> Pretty much yeah. just walked in while number 50 yep. on the Rock and Rollers had his back completely turned to the play. Of course. Don't, you got to keep the play behind you. <laughs> he was tracking someone, but that's useless when you leave the entire slot open and... Literally, you can watch this guy ignore uh, Sosha walking into the slot pretty much uncontested. Yep, it's a high shot, and this may shock you, but a high shot on a five foot, go- five, five foot six goaltender is going to score, and it did. It's 5-9. So, yeah, oh. so it's 5-9, to nine, and what can make us feel better but, you know, some Happy Meal commercials regarding the Lion King. As oh, 1994, right. we're reminded, is one of the best years in cinema history with the release of the Lion King and the contenders of... Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, Quiz Show, and uh, Three Weddings and a Funeral, all in contention for Best Picture. And I want to throw that in, mainly because this game's 9-5 to five and it feels bad. <laughs> I, I will say, that one, I guess if you're getting a, want to get an understanding of what were the 90s were like from a media entertainment perspective, ESPN2's whole presentation is a good representation of that. Um, and you may have seen some of their commercials for Sports Night, you know, the hip alternative to Sports Center. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think the most 90s thing outside of the fact of watching a professional roller hockey game in the summer is the fact that uh, they, they had a Gatorade commercial. Where they were like, Gatorade is old. And basically, the message is Gatorade is old and busted. Powerade is a hit new alternative. If you drink Gatorade, you're wearing roller skates with four wheels and a rectangle. But if you're, <laughs> if you're a super cool guy skating in a universally different place that's not anywhere on Earth with five wheels on your blades, you're drinking Powerade. It's the next thing. And then Deion Sanders points at the camera with his football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And we, we all know how that ended in the great Gatorade versus Powerade wars. But that all being said, we come back to the game after our lovely diversion to the 90s. Thanks for that. That was that was really good. And then we get another power play goal for Buffalo. It, it's actually worse than that, Dan, because they called the penalty, then they, they went to commercial. And the broadcast never brings up what the penalty is. Yep. And you can't hear the PA. <laughs> like, the PA guy is somewhat audible, but you can't make out what they're saying. So they, they eventually, during this power play for Buffalo... Wild Goose, they say they mentioned, oh, Wild Goose is in the box. Okay, for what? I can't tell you. I don't know if I don't know if it was interference. I don't know if it was for language. Maybe he was not wearing the right roller skates. I don't know. It, I don't we know. Don't have arbitrarily, he was in the box. He was arbitrarily in the box, and we think we have a power play goal shortly after after another bad defensive performance where Vecarelli gets his uh, goal on a one timer. So at least you know there you know the Buffalo Stampede had a you know make a play. Yeah. And uh, this one-timer was a beauty of a one-timer. Moreum had no chance. And it's 5-10, to 10, and then we get the word from Jim Fox on the bench that Fatou is on the bench. Uh, when they when he says this, they show some man in a suit, and I assume that was Fatou, and then they, they re- then they showed later he was and still in uniform. So I originally thought that after the third quarter, he was so mad about things, he took a shower, put on a suit, and became the coach again. Oh, yeah. No, he, no, he was just on the bench barking out orders before he decided – 
to step onto the rink. <laughs> yeah, well, so we, he couldn't be on the bench. We know he screened uh, Manon on that first shot of the period. True, but I, I, I want I, I want to believe he benched himself. Maybe, oh, maybe that's what he was doing. Entirely possible, but uh, I would do it. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, what ten to five at this point. Yep. Uh, Hero manages to get one back. Eve Hero gets a goal back pretty quickly after that, and they're within four. It's a little shot that goes basically from one of the circles that beats um, that Vitucci. beats Vitucci far side. That's right. And there yeah, you go. I, so it's ten to six now, and you know there's still some semblance of hope, which is a weird thing to say at a four goal lead. But uh, there's some confusion that happens as oh, not only were yeah. the announcers confused as to what happened in this next sequence, but the coaches, who are by the way delightfully mic'd up for 1994, I gotta say, loved that insight and loved some of the quotes I was hearing. You, you didn't expect to hear some words that you heard on an ESPN broadcast. But yep. uh, that all being said, there was a play where a player gets pulled down. and Hick. Yeah, Hicks on Buffalo gets hauled down by Hero. And but Hero, you know, he gets hauled down, but Hicks holds onto a stick and pulls it out of his hands as he falls. Right. So initially, they only called the, the stick hold on Hicks, and then McSorley starts spitting the verbals like Mussolini on the balcony <laughs> and, and, and gestures with his hands, thankfully non-obscene gestures about... You know what this is? This is a hold, ref. This is a hold. Like, okay, well, Chris, you're McSorley. You know what the penalty calls are. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's doing this, the the symbols for it, right? Yep. He's going, this is a hold. This, this is a... two more minutes. Yep. This is two more minutes. And then they have to mute him because he was starting to, you know, start spitting out some words he can't say on television. That's right. <laughs> um, eventually, the refs conference this, and they did give Hero the holding call. So I guess McSorley got what he wanted. But then... There was a second Buffalo player in the in the box, and the announcers just go, "We think that's unsportsmanlike." <laughs> yeah, they really weren't sure what was going on. It it didn't seem like the refs even knew. So I guess less so on the announcers because before they missed like blatant penalties, they missed things that were called and announced in the arena. This one seemed to have the refs taking a while to sort it out, as they weren't really sure if it was matching penalties. If it wasn't, at the end of the day, they just went back to full strength. It seemed or so no, they were about to. They were and about to, and then McSorley yeah, got go mad, and and then then they decided to give New Jersey the four on three power play. Right, and uh, you know it didn't really matter at that point just because the gap was so wide. But this power play basically takes them too close to the end of the game, so they have yeah. they have a few opportunities to get at least a goal back or two. But what ends up happening instead <laughs> is that Buffalo gets an empty net goal through. Um, Nemeth, and then they get another goal with 3.8 seconds left through Nemeth again to make yeah. it 12 to six, and that's another two goals in 30 second span. But what are you going to say? Like these goals are going to come quickly and often, but if it's 10 to six and you give up the 11th, I don't know that you're going to be trying too hard for the next 30 seconds. Well, to be fair, it begs the question: You're down four goals. You have a power play. It's near the end of the game. Why are you pulling Rayon for an extra skater? One. Mm -hmm. And then after there's a freeze, because Vertusi does have to do some work on this uh, penalty kill, Fatou decides, I'm going to get on the on the court here and play as a screener right. for this five on three. He might as well just stayed on the bench. Right. Because <laughs> the rock and roll, Nemeth makes a steal and, and he goes in and scores an easy ENG. And then we get a repeat of this almost where Nemeth takes the puck from a defender and just skates in alone and puts it past Rayom. 
And the announcers think, oh, did that go in and out? Did it go off both posts? And they're like, no, it went off the center post, the back mm. bar, because it was that good of a shot. And it's like, you're, you already took the L when you pulled, Rayo. You took the L many goals ago. You took the L <laughs> when you started the fourth quarter and you decided, you know what we need to do? We need to make the game harder on our goaltender. We need to take bad penalties. We need to not create more opportunities. We need to let Major and and, and LeMay and Socho and, and Vertucci and, and all these other guys basically just do whatever they want to us because we're not going to defend them. And if we are, it's not going to be legal. And, you know, we're just going to disappoint this crowd that was you know, 10 minutes ago, super hyped up over the fact that Rayom was A, in the game, and B, playing well, and mm. C, you were making a comeback. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, they dashed that in the fourth quarter, and eventually, like I said, when we um, kicked this off, Buffalo would go on to win the championship in this season of the RHI. So they're a formidable team all year, but the effort just wasn't there from the Rock and Rollers defensively. They kind of left Rayom and Berthoun out to dry over the course of this game, and while they had some exciting offensive opportunities, it was ultimately... Not for much, as Buffalo was clearly the better team and dictated the majority of the play. So, you know, that brings us to the end of New Jersey Rock and Rollers versus Buffalo Stampede. This was a, like we mentioned, this was an RHI game from 1994. So a lot of the things in terms of penalties, in terms of what was being called, what wasn't being called, was reflective of the NHL at the time. And in terms of how lenient they were on hooks and grabbing and holding, we noticed and we talked about how before basically 2005 that was all just part of the game so you can see it mirrored and you can see stylistically that a lot of these guys did take their play from from ice hockey there was no one that was that seemed like a native roller hockey player because they never really had the time to develop that right and roller hockey well roller hockey has always had you know international leagues and things but it's super niche and very very different for it it took a while before inline was recognized by the powers that be of international roller hockey Mm -hmm. i'll put it that way Uh, but even so you know rhi 94 was effectively its peak um in the following seasons the team you know the league contracted they lost franchises franchises went suspended and came back a year later they took 1998 entirely off in the hopes of having a more stable 1999 season that didn't happen I mean, well, the 99 season did happen, but they folded after that. Mm-hmm. And just like the, you know, inline inline skating, it was very much a 90s thing. So our uh, New know, Jersey it, Rock and Rollers made the finals one time. True. They, they yeah. lost to Anaheim in 1997, but that's the closest they would get. Otherwise, yeah, you know, the league folded, like you said, there was just very little interest. And it started to get to the point where most of the teams that were still in were in California anyway. So yeah. they, they just didn't – they expanded so quickly that they just didn't have the infrastructure to support it for an extended period of time. But it was exciting that it was a thing. It was cool to watch yeah, this it, kind it of game. It had a TV deal. It had, you know, it, it had a lot of NHL and, and minor league hockey participation. You know, there was an argument back in the 90s that, yeah, this could work. But as you said, Dan, they expanded way too quickly. And they didn't really build anything up outside of Anaheim, you know, where they legitimately drew five-figure crowds most nights. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they just spread themselves way too thin. And the fad went away. And, you know, it just faded out. And it was yet another another league that did not end well for Mr. Murphy. And unlike (laughs) the ABA and the WHA, there would be no, no, you know, merging or anything like that or any long-lasting – 
legacy other than to say in the 90s, roller professional roller hockey was a thing in North America, and Man on Rayon played a couple games in it. All right, so that brings us to the end of the discussion about Roller Hockey Invitational. There's a lot of cool uploads happening now of people looking back at the games and uh, digging into their personal archives and making them available for the public. As the stoppage continues, we have some news regarding a potential 24-team NHL playoff. But until we know that more concretely, we'll keep covering games that not only took place in the Garden State, but took place... Involving teams that call the Garden State their home and the team that started it, New Jersey Devils, we're going to go back to some ice hockey here. And we have another special game from uh, this era of 90s New Jersey hockey. For many of us, like myself, uh, the 1993-94 season was a halcyon year for the Devils fan. While that season ended badly, and I'm not going to go over why because if you live in the area, you know exactly what happened because mm. a certain television network will not stop talking about it. The New Jersey Devils effectively started becoming contenders in this season. And I found a game from the beginning, near the beginning of that season featuring Martin Berdor's second start in what would end up being his Calder Trophy campaign, a game that features John McClain, a young Scott Niedemeyer, Bernie Nichols, if you remember him as a devil for a hot minute. Even Alexander Simak is in this game. And the opponent? The opponent is no longer where they are, but they're still in the league, and that's your one hint. Actually, screw the hint. I'm just going to go right to it. <laughs> it's the Winnipeg Jets of the, ni- the mid-'90s featuring a very young Keith Kachuk, Alex Dean's dad, Thomas, Alexei Zhamanov, and... Teppo Newmanin, mm-hmm. T. Mussolini, and perhaps the most infamous and easily the most hated, one of the most hated players of this era, Ty Domi. Yeah, that's that's a... right. We are watching the original Winnipeg Jets take <laughs> on the New Jersey Devils at the Brendan Byrne Arena on October 12, 1993. This one is a barn burner. And as a second extra bonus, this is the Winnipeg broadcast. So if you love that 90s, you know, aesthetic from the ESPN2, well, go back in time a little further and you'll see what Winnipeg, Manitoba thought about the 90s back in 93 with respect to ice hockey. It's going to be a treat. It's definitely going to be something to look back on and realize that, oh, Lemaire teams did have some offense at times. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks for introducing that next one. It's going to be a cool one to see. You know, we've watched a lot of Berdour games, but we've watched mostly games where he was superhuman and ridiculous, which is normally his uh you know modus operandi there but this game his rookie season while it was a calder campaign they can't all be good so i'm glad you found this one i'm glad we get an opportunity to see a very very young marty Berdour and some very very prominent future arizona slash phoenix coyotes (laughs) exactly because some of them would make the trip down south when the move was made later in the decade kachuk comes to mind in particular yep Um, Well, yeah, that all being said, that brings us to the end of this episode of Garden State of Hockey. Thanks for watching some Roller Hockey International with us. And unfortunately, while New Jersey's team didn't win, we'll continue to look back at games, any kind of hockey games that are going on in the state of New Jersey, about the state of New Jersey, around the state of New Jersey, until we get the NHL season back. But until then, my name, and probably through then also, my name is Dan Rosell, and I'm joined by John Fisher. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you.